0: Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words of encouragement. We see that Paul struggled like we do with sin, and yet he trusted in Christ as Lord to deliver him from that body of death. And Lord, we read about Jesus who promises our, if we take his yoke, it is easy. The burden is light. Lord, I pray that we would be people who are always aware of our ability, and freedom to transfer the burden of our sin onto Jesus Christ. And may we be people who are known for our faith in you. Thank you, Jesus, for those people who you send into our lives as an encouragement. And I pray for Jack Strom's family this morning that they would be comforted by the promises that he preached for those many years. Amen. All right, so we're in the book of Luke again at chapter 5, starting at verse 17. So if you like to look on your own, I encourage that, by the way. Uh, We will have scripture on the screen, but it's always good for you to open that up and find it in your own Bible uh, and look at it with your own eyes. Um, But we're going to look at another story of a healing but this is more than just a physical healing and we're going to see that in a moment i'm going to start right off by reading the passage and then we will take a look at it so starting at verse 17 on one of those days as he was teaching pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of galilee and judea and from jerusalem and the power of the lord was with him to heal And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. As we begin to look at this passage, I want to tell you, some of you know these words, but I always think it's good to teach big words. Like my, one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, said, you're, you're Christians now, you've got to learn some big words. So there's two words. There's hermeneutics and there's homiletics. Those are the two words I want to mention. Hermeneutics is, the, is like a, a, a study, how, a, a method of how to study the Bible. So it's, it's like a process you use to try to figure out what the Bible is saying in a particular passage. And then homiletics is the way you present it. So it's, a, it's preaching. Now, I just found a dryer sheet in my shirt. That's like, it's like, what's going on here? <laughs> That's distracting. Okay, I was like, what's in my sleeve? I got a trick up my sleeve. Okay, that was unintended. Okay, so (laughs) at least you know I washed my clothes, right? Um, Okay, so, uh, but homiletics is like the the way of presenting the scripture. So in other words, how to preach it or teach it. And the Bible college I went to, uh, we weren't as fancy, so we just called it Preaching 101. But that's what homiletics is. Anyway, I was talking to someone one time, and they were talking about their homiletics class. Um, And they got to the class in the first week, and the assignment was a particular passage for all the students. They were all supposed to come up with a preaching outline of how they would preach that passage. And as they did that, they came back the next week with their assignment complete, and the assignment for the next week was the same passage, now do a different outline. So each student had to do a different outline. And they did this, I think, three or four weeks. The professor had the students come back in. And he had them compare the different outlines they came up with from Scripture. And, and it was an amazing thing that they all saw. Look at all that this passage had within it as potential to teach from the Word of God. And his point was, the professor's point, was that the Word of God is inexhaustible in the lessons that it can teach us. And so as I was preparing to preach this message, um, I saw a lot of potential in there, and I didn't know sometimes you see so much potential for different ways to go. You just sit there like, "What do I do?" You know But there's at least eight sermons I could have preached on this passage. I'll spare you from that. But I, I asked myself, what is this passage all about? And I wrote down a few things with, to think about. One, one I wrote down was faith. Is this passage about faith? Of the, the man had faith, his companions had faith. Is it about faith? Well, it could be. Is it about perseverance? These guys, well, they couldn't get through the door, so they go and they make a way. They, get, they do something kind of extraordinary, and they come in and uh, make sure their friend gets in front of Jesus. So is it about perseverance? Is it about forgiveness? Jesus forgives the man of his sin. Is it about skepticism? The Pharisees and the scribes are teachers. They're they're skeptical about Jesus. Is this a a lesson about skepticism? Is it a lesson about healing? You know, this is clearly a a man was healed. Could it be a, a message just on healing? Could it be a message on obedience? He obeyed Jesus' command. He picked up the bed to go home. Could it be about God's glory? God is glorified. We see in those last couple verses that everybody was in awe and he went home glorifying God. Or was it about love? These men loved their friend enough to bring him into this situation, to get him in front of Jesus, and Jesus loves the broken and contrite in spirit. So... I was stuck on how to preach it. Sometimes when I'm stuck on how to preach it, I go to see how other people have preached it, and sometimes that helps, and sometimes it doesn't help at all. Uh, But John MacArthur, he needed three sermons to get through this same passage, and his sermons are like an hour. So if you think I'm preaching too long, then there's other places you could go where it was much longer. Of course, there's places you could go as much shorter, too. But uh, anyway... So all of the possibilities that I mentioned, and probably a bunch of others, are included. There are many more lessons that could be drawn from this passage. Scripture truly is inexhaustible in the lessons that it can teach us. But I decided what we'll focus on is what does this passage tell us about Jesus primarily and how God was glorified. So let's go back and look at verse 17 again, and and we'll get through this together. So on one of those days, it says, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, if you've been around in the church very long, you've heard that word Pharisee. Uh, sometimes Christians call each other Pharisees, and it's usually a pejorative and a, not a very nice thing you would say about someone. Um, but sometimes we don't really know much about what that means, or we have a caricature of them. In other words, we have this kind of view of them that we see them in one way only. And I want to take a moment to just talk about what what are the Pharisees? Who are they? Well, if you were in our Sunday school class just recently, we were in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we talked about where Ezra, the priest, after the walls were built, they had all the people come and they read the book of the law and then they took time to explain it and they they were they actually had to take some actions that were pretty hard to do to get themselves back in alignment with God's word and Ezra was strong in saying we need to be following the ways of God we need to obey his commands and so with that began they most people trace the Pharisees, which were almost like a party within the church, like a political party, I guess. Um, But they were people with a certain thought process or philosophy about how to live out um, the faith or the the religion of the Jewish people. Um, And so... Ezra, when he started, some people, a lot of people draw that from the very beginning of the Pharisees, although Ezra wasn't like the Pharisees Jesus was talking about. He was just trying to get people to align with the words. But what happened was that the Pharisees were very concerned about obedience to the law. That's a good thing, right? So they built law walls around the law. A- Around the law itself, they built walls. So if I don't know if this illustration will hold, but I'm going to use it. I just thought of this. If the law of God was a city, and they were responsible to maintain and keep that city, then they had decided they needed a fortified wall around their city. And if the law said, for example, don't use God's name in vain, they were so concerned they wouldn't break the commandment to not break God's name, or or to to not blaspheme his name, that they built a wall around that, and they decided we're not even going to ever say his name. If you never say the holy name of God, then in their mind you couldn't use it in blasphemy. What they probably misunderstood is blasphemy is not only the actual name of God, but anything you would attribute to him. Um, And so blasphemy happened regardless. But that was one of the walls they built around the law of God to say we're going to protect ourselves from even getting close to that violation by putting an extra wall out there. Another example, if the law says to keep the Sabbath and not work on the Sabbath, then they would add all kinds of rules to keep them away from disobeying that law as well. And so their rules were the wall, and God's rule was the city so that to protect themselves from assaulting the city, they built a heavy wall around it. Now, was this from bad motives? Not necessarily. But over time, it is this legalism that binds people, and really, Jesus said no one could even stand or bear up against the burden of all these rules. And if you think about it, they could not keep the rules God had already given them, So adding more rules did nothing more than condemn them in their own eyes, since no one could keep all of those rules. So like I said, the Pharisees were more like a political party within the church or people that held together based on a philosophy that they held. They were not priests. They were not Levitical priests or anything like that. They were lay people that were doing their best, they thought, to try to keep God's ways, and so they continued to build those walls up around, around God's law. They had a lot of influence. Um, they worked hard to be righteous, and generally speaking, people have respect for that. And so the, the Pharisees actually had a lot of influence in their community. And over generations, though, it became less about protecting themselves from breaking God's law... And more about enforcing their own. So that progression, I don't know how quickly that happened, but that was the progression that comes. And I think that's a warning for us, too, that if we feel like we have some uh, law we have to keep that's outside of God's law and we're trying to protect ourselves or others, we could end up being legalistic as well. So um, anytime someone has a very strong position that they want to be righteous, uh, That's a good attitude to have, but they have to be cautious that they don't come to the point where we're adding rules, our own rules of righteousness, that aren't in the Bible. All right, so Luke includes that the power of the Lord was with him to heal in this passage. Um, There there were these Jews and Pharisees, I'm sorry, the the teachers and Pharisees that were there, uh, by the way, they came to watch Jesus carefully. Um, obviously, they knew about Jesus. They made sure at this uh, time they were basically in the front row seat. Why? Because they were trying to catch him in some error. They they were out. You see this throughout Scripture. They were always trying to find some way, and uh, and so we will see in a bit here how they uh, find something they think they're going to be able to use against Jesus. By the way, there are some that think this could have been Peter's house. It's not certain, but this was a house in Capernaum. Uh, we know that previously um, Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law, and she had gotten up and served them, so it indicates that the, he had at least some kind of a house for entertaining people. Um, but that's speculation, and we don't want to go beyond Scripture, but um, certainly we, we do know Not from this passage, but this this account is in Matthew as well and in the Gospel of Mark, and and we know from uh, from the other accounts that this was in Capernaum. All right, so moving on to verse 18, it says, Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So last week we were talking about the healing of the leper, and the word leper, you may remember, we, I said it had a broad meaning at that time. It wasn't one specific condition. It could cover probably at least a dozen different skin conditions that were uh, possible within that. So today we're looking at um, another disease, but we don't know the exact disease. Uh, we know that he was paralyzed. Because in those days they didn't describe things that were medical the way we describe them. Okay, they usually just talked about the symptoms. Okay, today we actually talk about we often know the actual disease name and then we talk about the conditions. Um, and in this case, they we don't we don't know exactly why he was paralyzed. Um, today we might say, "Oh, that person had a." accident and they had their backbone uh, damaged and their spinal cord was damaged and and they're paralyzed. Or we might say they had such and such disease and they're paralyzed. Uh, But back then they didn't always know what it caused it. They just used the description of the condition. Um, So what caused the paralysis? We do not know more than the Bible tells us. But I discovered that a lot of people have had lots of opinions as you read different commentaries of what people think this was and uh, and they it's almost like they want to make a bigger theological point than what's actually in the passage, and so we have to be careful with that. Some of them say, well, maybe he had paralysis caused by syphilis, which was common in those days. That was usually the result of some sin that had happened and and uh, can result in paralysis, and the reason a lot of people like to put that with there is because Jesus pairs uh, healing here with forgiveness of sins, and so they think, oh, he had sinned to get this disease or sinned to, in some way that caused it, and so Jesus is forgiving the sin that resulted in the paralysis. Now, that that could be true as we evaluate that he was forgiven and healed, but we simply cannot be sure, and we know from Scripture that we ought to be careful not to assume that someone's illness is directly linked to their personal sin, although this is a possibility so you know it's a possibility but we can't automatically assume that that's when jesus said that the disciples asked is this a man blind because he sinned or his parents sinned what happened here and he said neither uh it was so that the glory of god would be revealed in him and so jesus taught us that we don't want to assume that just because someone's got a physical ailment uh that um or, or any other tragedy in their life really for that matter that it's automatically because they sinned it could be but it's not automatic All right, so anyway, Luke uses this word behold. In other words, listen to this. He wants you to pay attention to this point. Some men were bringing him. Now these men cared for their friend. They believed that Jesus had the power to heal him, and now we see that their faith goes beyond just thoughts. Their faith causes them to take action. In verse 19, finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed, through the tiles, into the midst, before Jesus. Here is the persistence that love and faith combined will take. Now, sometimes we have the love and persistence to see someone through, to bring them to Jesus. We would like to persist in that. But unless they're willing, we may not always be able to help them in that way. And certainly there's nothing in this text that suggests at all that the man was brought against his will that they were dragging him there or something like that or he was tied to the bed because they he didn't want to come we don't see any evidence of that at all and so it seems that he was there willingly i'm sure we all could imagine this scene in our minds and shake our heads a little bit right like these men they'd go so far to bring him to jesus that they would come through the roof and this is another thing the commentators can't resist speculating on, the type of roof. Because in one of the gospel accounts, it says they dug through the roof. And in Luke, it says they moved the tiles. And, and so there's people that have written entire dissertations on what type of roof this was. Um, and, and, then, and then that gets at whether it was vandalism or was it something where they just removed parts that could be put back in place, that kind of thing. Um, In fact, I got a whole history lesson on roofs at that time in Palestine. (laughs) And so I'm going to resist spending too much time on that because while that may be interesting in its own way, I don't believe the exact roof type has bearing on what this passage is actually teaching. Rather, let us acknowledge that these friends went above and beyond. Get it? They went above and beyond. Uh, They went above and beyond what many would have. They loved their friend enough to do extra physical labor for him. They loved their friend enough to risk being yelled at by the homeowner. They risked looking cheeky so that their friend could have a chance to be touched by Jesus. And their love resulted in action. And when their initial plan failed, they did not turn around and go back home. They persevered. I think so long as someone does not outright reject Jesus, we should persevere as we can on their behalf. Number one, we should persevere in prayer. We should persevere in love, kindness, gentleness. We should persevere in telling the truth, and we should tell the truth with grace. Jesus is full of grace and truth. We should desire that as well. In verse 20, when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. So whose faith? did Jesus see? Well, that's another topic that the Bible scholars spent much energy discussing. Was it the faith of the friends or the friends and the sick man? Well, I think it is probably both. Again, there's no indication that he was not willing to go. There's at least a mustard seed of faith in him. And if there was no faith, he would have refused to come. Jesus can take even a small amount of faith and turn it into a miracle. And now we see we need to know uh, what we need to know and be reminded of again and again is that our God is a forgiving God. Sometimes people wrongly think of God as a different God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some people think in the Old Testament, God was this harsh, rule-giving, punishing God. And then in the New Testament, somehow he changed and got more, maybe in his old age, he got uh, you know, more gentle with people or something like that. That is, as though people think he matured and softened in the New Testament. But God was always a forgiving God. Always. And I'll prove it to you. Back in the New Testament, Nehemiah nine seventeen, it says, They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. You are a God ready ready to forgive gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them psalm 25:18 consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins jeremiah 31:34 and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the lord for i will forgive their iniquity And I will remember their sin no more. Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Daniel 9, 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Psalm 103, 3. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Exodus 34, 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Psalm 86, 5, But you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Our God has always been a forgiving God. A long-suffering and patient God. Will he finally judge all? Yes. Will his long-suffering come to an end at some point for those who never repent? Yes. But God loves to forgive. He's a forgiving God. And don't forget that, Christian. Be reminded here and now that God forgives and those who are in Christ are forgiven. And when you have failed and missed the mark and come to him in honest humility and repentance, he will forgive again. He's a forgiving God. But the Pharisees become quite concerned at this point. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you, you see the word forgiven here I did a little bit of a word study on this. It was amazing. It it could mean let go, sent away, abandoned, to acquit, to let loose, to dismiss, to remit. And that's where the word remission of sins comes from. Forgiven means all of that. Your sins, when God forgives them, are taken completely away, out of this realm, and only God can do this, and the omnipotent God puts your sins where even he cannot find them again. Clever people for centuries have posed this question, could God create a rock so heavy that he could not even lift it himself? And people try to pose this as a paradox, right? If God can create a rock so heavy he cannot lift it, well, then he lacks the power to lift it, so he doesn't have all power. And if he cannot create a a rock too heavy for him to lift, well, then he lacks the creative power. And you're left saying, how do I answer this? Well, you answer that it is a logical fallacy. God cannot make a rock too heavy for himself to lift because it is logically incoherent to limit God in any way. God is not limited in his creative ability, nor is he limited in strength. Since both his creative abilities and his strength are limitless, it makes no logical sense to think that he could build a rock he could not lift, so the paradox turns into a fallacy. But here is something God does to limit himself. He sends our forgiven sins so far from us that he himself cannot find them again. In other words, they are removed, remitted, caused to cease existing. And that ought to produce a loud hallelujah as you contemplate that. The only reason we hold on to our forgiven sins is because we are not fully believing God yet. But if you can get to the point of grasping the power of God's forgiveness found in Christ, you will experience a freedom like you have never felt before. And verse 21 then, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Pharisees knew their scriptures very well. Only God can forgive sin. Now, we can forgive each other for offenses. I'll pick on John. If John offends me, I can forgive John. But I can't forgive John of his sin against God. Only God can forgive that sin. Right? So, anyone other than God who would claim to forgive sins would be a blasphemer. There's really only two options here. Either Jesus is God and authorized to forgive sins, or he is a blasphemer. The Pharisees are right in their theology on this, by the way. But they are wrong in their assumptions about Jesus. He is the one who forgives because he God. They may at this point think they have Jesus cornered. They have been looking for something to use against him, and it may seem to them at this point they have their aha moment. Jesus is well aware of this in verses 22 and 23. Jesus perceived their thoughts. He answered them. Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? Well, let's take a moment to think about this. For Jesus, neither statement is easier. They're both easy. He isn't asking which phrase comes off the tongue more smoothly. He's pointing out that if he were a charlatan, he could leave it right there and say, your sins are forgiven. From a human perspective, there's no way to know if that's true or not. I could use the words, I forgive you, and not mean them. There's no real way for people to verify if someone's sin is forgiven by God. But rise and walk. If a fake prophet were to say that, it would be immediately verifiable that he was a false prophet. The bigger miracle is the forgiveness of sins, by the way, but the verifiable miracle for these people is the healing of the man. And and we see that throughout Scripture. The forgiveness of sins is often linked to healing. In James 5, 14 and 15, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, for elders praying for the sick, and I'll be the first to admit, we don't always do this right, probably. At least I don't. We ought to be asking the person, if we love them, if they have any sins for which they need to repent. But sometimes we don't do that, right? Because you you have someone that's really sick with cancer. It doesn't seem very, um, you know, social (laughs) to say, well, as you're laying there, is there some unrepentant sin that uh, you're dealing with? Is there some bitterness you're harboring from years back? Is there someone you won't forgive yourself? We don't usually do that, but I'll be the and I admit that we ought to be asking people when we're praying for their healing, for their own benefit. Is there something you need to come before the Lord with to repent of? And sometimes I don't remember to do that when I'm praying for the sick. In um, in uh, the introduction and commentary of Luke, um, it says Jesus performs the cure that they may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. His words about forgiveness and healing go together. If he can do the one, he can do the other. The Jews of the day thought that all sickness was due to sin. A sick man does not recover from his sickness until all his sins are forgiven him, is one of the quotes. Had they been consistent accordingly, they would have accepted the man's forgiveness. Verse 24 then Jesus solves the issue as far as them trying to pin him down. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now Jesus proves his power over sickness and his ability to forgive sins. And finally, what happens here? Verses twenty-five and twenty-six, and immediately he rose up and went before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. In amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Spurgeon wrote this: I think I see him. He sets one foot down to God's glory. He plants the other to the same note. He walks to God's glory. He carries his bed to God's glory. He moves his whole body to the glory of God. He speaks, he shouts, he sings, he leaps to the glory of God. So with all the lessons in this passage that we could have drawn out, there are many. In the end, oughtn't we to glorify God and his goodness, both the healings he's done for many of us, but most importantly, the forgiveness of our sins. God is a God of forgiveness. He was a God of the forgiveness from the very beginning. He even promised Adam and Eve that he would provide a way for them. And from that time on, God has been a forgiving God. But you must not, if you aren't putting faith in Christ yet, You must not think for a moment that he will forgive you with no end and with no repentance and with no faith in Christ. You must put faith in Christ. You must repent of your sins. You must put them aside. You must live a life that honors God. But if you have done that and you fail again, which we all do, then all you need to do is be obedient to Scripture and First John 1 tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He puts our sins as far as the east is from the west. God himself, the omnipotent God who has power to do anything, limits his own power in that way. He sends our sins to a place where he himself will never see them again or think about them again. So why do we cling to our sin? For the glory of God, I pray that all of us listening this morning will have a new sense of the glory of God when it comes to how he removes our sin from us through Jesus Christ. It's an incredible thing. It's an amazing thing. And it ought to make you walk out of here with a little lighter step. If you have a sin that you know that you need to confess before God, why would you wait? Why would you hold on to it? Why would you carry that burden, which may lead you to depression, which may lead you to sickness? Why hang on to it? When God says, I will remove that sin from you, where it never will be seen again. As far as the east is from the west, why didn't he not say north from south? He said east to west because you can never go far enough east where you're not going east anymore. You can go north and you can get to a point where you're no longer going north, but you can't go any farther to the east where you're not going east anymore. That's how Christ has forgiven you. And that is what we need to remember when we feel so offended that we can't forgive somebody else. I was thinking about that this morning as we were praying. King David was extremely disturbed when people blasphemed God. That's what got his ire up, and he went and took Goliath down. It wasn't his insult against the Israelites. It was the blasphemy that David could not tolerate. But when people went after him, he was willing to just let that go. He ran away from Saul, didn't fight him, didn't kill him when he had the chance. That guy that was cursing him as he was leaving the city, Shimei or whatever his name was, and and his uh, guards said, let me go take his head off. And David's like, I don't know, maybe God sent him to curse me today. Well, by the way, that guy did get his own later on, and David had left it in God's hands. So we, we can take as an example from that. If someone is blaspheming God, if you're angered because you see someone uh, with a pride flag and doing some very disturbing things in public, and trying to twist kids to follow that path, and you're offended because it it is an assault on the righteousness of God, that's a valid anger. But if you're offended because it just they they yelled an insult at you, then maybe we need to be like David and let that go. And then say to God like David did. Look at a lot of those psalms. And he said, Lord, how do you let them get by with this? But, but give it over to him. Let him take care of that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That he is glorified when you, when you repent of your sins. It is to his glory that he takes your sins and puts them away. And all of heaven rejoice when a sinner repents. I believe that applies to believers, too, that repent again and again because he doesn't qualify that, right? Anyway, we'll close up. Let's pray together, and then we'll have another song together and make sure you congratulate Barry and Becky Joe on their way out for their 51 years of marriage. Lord, thank you.